Welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we explore the line of duty deaths of firefighters and paramedics so that we can learn from these tragedies and ultimate sacrifices and possibly prevent them from happening again in the future. My name is Paul, and I'll be your host. I'm a retired fire or deputy fire chief in Western Canada. My co-host today is Doug. Hello, Doug. Hey, Paul. How are you? Good, thanks. Enjoying the uh, warmish weather for February. A little windy, but uh, it's Canada and it's February, so we're inside doing a podcast. It could be a lot worse. That's right. could be nasty cold. We're going to get some snow and cold yet, I'm sure. So you've been a busy boy. Yeah, just had a baby three weeks ago. Nice. Yeah, spent our second one. So we've got a two-year-old and a new one. So life's pretty busy around the house. Yeah, and you're working shifts and yeah. you're doing a little extra work too. Yeah, down at the academy for a block. So it was it was good to nice little change of pace and back at the hall next block. Yeah, good, good. You're doing like driver evaluations. That's yeah. important this week. We just had that fatality here in central Alberta where the uh, engine on a rural call during an icy, uh, icy response to an MVC uh, rolled and the one firefighter was killed and the chief was uh, was injured, right? So, yeah, uh, sad story there, but yeah, and a lot of departments can't afford anything beyond the basic operator training, right? And, uh, like, I always think we, we always tried to get the guys to take that emergency vehicle driver training and stuff, which added a lot, I think, to the to it. But okay, well, here at the Emergency Traffic Podcast, I guess we should do the blurb on uh, you can follow us on Twitter uh, at uh emergency traffic twitter.com or you can email us at emergency traffic podcast at gmail.com and we now have a facebook page so emergency traffic on facebook all right this week's uh case study is going to be back in february 11th of 1998 in illinois two fire male firefighters were fatally injured while fighting a fire at a commercial tire service center so a tire shop the two fire victims, along with eight to ten other firefighters and officers, had entered the front door of a showroom, observed light smoke, light haze. However, when they entered the service area, black smoke covered the top one-third of the ceiling space, but there was no visible fire. From the smoke in the showroom, it was evident that there was probably a smoldering fire somewhere, but none of the firefighters could locate the origin. Both the engine and truck officers made extensive interior sweeps of the service area, However, within minutes, firefighters in the interior of the building were caught in a hazardous backdraft explosion that claimed the lives of two firefighters and nearly claimed all those who were inside. And we've heard this so many times in big structures, right, Doug, where, you know, there's just a bit of smoke in the, in the building, we're looking around, we can't find it, can't find it, and all of a sudden things go downhill fast. Yeah, it kind of might give you a false sense of security that you're at something small or not a very major incident and... I mean, lots of times I think guys won't even put their, their face piece on if they're able to breathe clean air under the smoke or whatever, and a little bit of smoke, and before you, before you can react, it's, things go bad, right? Yeah, we all do it. They probably didn't have any air on. They weren't ready for it. You know, there's smoke up above our heads, and off we go for sure. There's a video. Uh, Phoenix did a video, and it was in the blue car training, but uh, they did a burn in a similar kind of building, and they put pallets and stuff. And it actually, it measured how long it took for the smoke to bank down. 
uh, and it, it took a long time because of the big structure, right? Yeah. So that's a hazard in in uh, in these big buildings. Alrighty, well, back to the incident here. So the fire department in question uh, is a large metropolitan department here in North America and in Illinois. Serves a population of 2.7 million people in a ge geographic area of just over 220 square miles. 5,000 employees, 4,200 are uniformed firefighters. All new firefighters get a four-month uh, training program at their fire department academy, which covers all aspects of level one and level two, as recommended by NFPA. Uh, when they complete that and they pass their firefighter level two exams, then they're assigned to a station. The department also requires that each firefighter receive a couple hours of training per shift. The one victim had two years experience as a firefighter, so a bit of a rookie there, but 18 years as a paramedic. And the second victim had nine years of experience as a firefighter, which would probably put him in the senior man almost uh, category, uh, probably in most fire departments. I think that's similar to your fire department that you go on a three or four month training academy, right? Yeah, for sure. Very common for, for major urban fire departments to have their own training academy and I'm sure they take candidates that already have 1001 training and experience and they have candidates that have zero training and experience and they teach them all how to do it their way. Yeah, you, you did it both ways, right? You, you, you did it uh, on your own kind of first from a, a college, yeah. technical school. Yeah. Then through it with a volunteer or part-time on-call department that you For and sure, I were on yeah. together and then went to the and big city and mm -hmm. started all over with 1001 right. training all over again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you should have it down pat now. I, well, and of course, you, you taught lots uh, in yeah. the in the part time and stuff. And I did it the other way. I did my uh, ten on ones and stuff uh, over and over about three times in different jurisdictions, uh, and uh, took it through the part time part time thing. So, okay, well, okay, to the incident. So on February eleventh of nineteen ninety eight, at about uh, ten twenty four hours, the fire department received a call from an occupant of a private residence at the rear of a commercial tire service center stating that there was a fire in the interior of the building. Uh, the service center was a masonry block building with a brick facade and a on a concrete slab foundation. It was the tire center measured about 150 feet wide by 62 feet in depth. It had a glass showroom attached to the front that was 75 by 55 feet. Above there was a parts room or above the parts room there was a cock loft unfinished area below the roof where tires, Christmas decoration and miscellaneous items were stored, believed to be the area of origin of the fire upon investigation. The cock loft area, that storage area was only accessible from the service area in the back of the store or the shop. The roof was a constructed of open wooden bowstring trusses with unprotected polystyrene insulation glued to the underside. And of course, we, uh, as history buffs in the fire service, we all know bowstring wooden trusses. Of course, the uh, famous Hackensack, uh, Hackensack Ford dealership that uh, that had a fire similar that they couldn't find, and then eventually burned, and guys were killed in mm -hmm. it. Collapsed, right? I wonder if everybody remembers Hackensack. The guys on the job with you, Doug, remember Hackensack? Um, I'm sure, sorry, a lot of the guys on my job probably don't even know where Hackensack is, never mind if they had a big major fire. I mean, you know because it's a Ford dealer and you're a Ford <laughs> dealer, but uh, yeah. All right. 
The entrance to the service area was either through a standard passage door from the showroom into the service area, which you'd go in with customers and stuff, or through the exterior metal garage door, overhead door for cars to get in and out, which was raised and lowered by an electric motor, similar to most shops today, similar to our fire stations. The units responding initially were uh, engine 92 with four, uh, normal complement was five, but they were short that day. Engine 120 with five, truck 24 with five, truck 45 with five, and a battalion 21, which must have been a battalion chief. Pretty similar to a, you know, it's a good uh, 1001 or 10, 1071, no, 1710 staffing, having uh, the 12 or 16 guys for that uh, first alarm, probably similar to what you guys, what most metropolitan cities in, in uh, Canada and the States have. Uh, at uh, 20, 28 hours, so four minutes into the call, quick response time. Engine 120 was first to arrive on scene, engine 92 right behind them. Then the two trucks arrived fairly quickly and the battalion chief. None of the firefighters reported seeing any fire or smoke. So none of the firefighters, um, one of the firefighters radioed into dispatch to verify the address since they didn't see anything. The address was confirmed by dispatch. And at the same time, the neighbor who called the fire department told the firefighters that he had seen a fire at the rear of the building at approximately 20, 23 hours. So at approximately 20 to 30 hours, the owner of the business arrived to unlock the front door to the showroom. Approximately eight to 10 firefighters from the first arriving companies entered the showroom. Some fire re firefighters reported no smoke showing. Others reported observing a slight haze in the showroom when, uh, with the odor of a burning car. They opened the door to the service area at the back where black smoke was found uh, covering the top one third of the ceiling space. They entered with a charged and three quarter hose line which was connected to a two and a half inch lead out line, the old leader line Y. Uh, probably at the front of the building. Engine from uh, Lieutenant from Engine 120 walked deep into the service area along the wall to the south with an attempt to locate a light switch panel. At no time did they feel any excessive heat or see any fire. Two firefighters from truck 45 in front of the building and two firefighters from truck 24 went to the rear of the building. They ascended ground ladders to the roof and cut ventilation holes in the roof with axes. Firefighters on truck 24 started, stated that there was no smoke or fire showing when they arrived at the rear of the building. However, they noticed that the windows were dark and smoky. The, um, they punched a small hole in one window with an ax tip. Black smoke billowed out. This was seen and heard by the truck lieutenant inside doing a survey of the service area. Within five to eight minutes, the four firefighters on the roof have chopped a ventilation hole, approximately four or five foot square. When they peeled back the opening, black smoke was emitting from the hole. However, within 30 seconds, flames also started roaring up out the opening. All four firefighters immediately picked up their equipment and descended to the ladders to the ground. At about 22.43, so 10 minutes after, the eight to 10 firefighters and officers who were inside the building had advanced some 15 to 20 feet into the service area where the thick black smoke was above them. They reported running into each other because of the poor visibility. Remember, they couldn't get the lights on. That approximately 20 to 45 hours without warning, hot gases that had accumulated at the 20, along the 20-foot 20 high ceiling ignited, causing a backdraft situation. 
This created a pressure wave, knocking the firefighters off balance and to the floor. It is conceivable that just before the time of ignition, the overhead garage door to the service area was self-activated and raised, allowing additional air to fuel the fire. Of course, lots of air down low, right? They always said that for backdrops. Even though they had vented the top, that garage door would let a lot in. The, this was determined after. Sorry, Doug? I was just going to, as you were talking about this, they must not have had a tick back then in 98. I mean, I no, wasn't on the job yet, but. No, no ticks then. The first ticks, well, my fire department here locally bought the first tick. It was like $12,000. We raised money for it. I remember a big, big uh, MSA tick that was like high tech. And that was probably right around then, 90, 2000, 2002, maybe. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, maybe not every company had one or. Right, right. Just, yeah. So they determined by an examination of the electrical inspector and electrical engineers that the motor and drive chain assembly had definitely opened electrically as a result of the fire shorting out the low voltage side of the switch wires. So just that low voltage, never thought of the low voltage wires would activate the door. Yeah, that makes sense because they're right beside each other. Firefighters became disoriented from the backdraft, could not find the hose, were scrambling and yelling in a, an attempt to escape the inferno they've been caught in. Molten polythyrene insulation from the ceiling area was falling down on them. One of the firefighters who had managed to escape through the service door to the showroom later said, you could hear the firefighters running into each other or running into and knocking things over, yelling and screaming, trying to escape the burning structure. One firefighter dove through the office window to escape the burning building. The escape from the service area was complicated by the 20 cars stored in the service area, of course, and the intense heat, heavy black smoke, and disorientation of that large area, panic uh, from people being trapped. I mean, they're all experienced firefighters, so, I mean, there wouldn't be a lot of panic, but just trying to get out, I'm sure. Well, that's a pretty big area if there's 20 vehicles stored there. I was on a and call... And, and I'm sure, I mean, you, you get, every car probably feels the same when you can't see. So now you don't, you lost your train of thought of where the door actually is and you're just running into stuff all over the place. I mean, I, you, you probably start panicking pretty quick yeah. when you can't get out. Yeah, I was in a, a call way back in about 96 uh, here in the department that I was on and uh, we had a rural way way out of town it was actually in the other jurisdiction it was a, a shop a farm shop that was on fire and i went in there with another guy and we were crawling around trying to uh trying to find our way find the fire again lots of smoke the guys were venting windows at the back um and we were walking around you know i could remember feeling the hoists and the bumper of the car and stuff and I think I panicked. Um, anyway, I turned around and I was getting out of there with my partner. I told him, I said, hey, we're go we got to get out. I had a problem with my air pack. Now, I don't know. Those old air packs didn't flow a lot of air. So to me, I said that, you know, the malfunction, there were, I couldn't get air. It was probably me overdrawing on the pack. Um, and then, you know, so then we exited. And he was mad at me. He's like, why did we exit? I, said, I couldn't get any air. And so. But yeah, exactly the same situation. And it was just a small four-bay shop. So uh, after they exited the burning structure, immediate headcount was done. So par, it was discovered that two firefighters were missing. Rescue attempts by the firefighters to reenter the structure were numerous but futile. 
as the entire service area became quickly fully involved with fire, prohibiting entry and rescue for the missing firefighters. Within 30 minutes, the entire truss roof collapsed on the structure. So that's the summary of the, of the call. According to the medical examiner, the cause of death for both firefighters was carbon monoxide intoxication due to inhalation of smoke and soot. So air packs weren't on or ran out, knocked off, panicked, who knows. Uh, recommendation number one was ensure command conducts an initial evaluation of the incident scene upon arrival at the scene. They're talking that the initial evaluation or size up should include the size and location, the structure for its combustible construction, floor area, height of the building, the exposures, any damage from flame or float or smoke, um, resources that are evaluated, their ability to extinguish the fire, apparatus, etc. So a big thing was well, size up. Did command do an adequate size up of the hazard of a tire shop with you know smoke that someone saw or fire that someone smoke saw in there? The second recommendation, fire department should ensure command uh, command decision to ventilate the truss roof is based on conditions upon arrival. Uh, however, uh, window and door ventilation should be coordinated with fire extinguishment only after a charged hose line is in place and ready for extinguishment is ventilation of the windows and doors effect most effective. So and it sounds here like the, they vented the roof and those windows and they weren't full in water yet because they hadn't found the fire, right? Mm -hmm. So what's your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure urban American department, the truck companies do ventilation, the engine companies find the fire and extinguish it. And I mean, I, I've heard people before that you can't find the fire. Well, if you introduce a little bit of air and you're ready, then you find the fire faster and you can put it out. These guys, I mean, I don't want, I wasn't there. Don't want to speak for them, but it right. probably just needed a little bit of air and went from no visible fire to lots of fire and they weren't right. ready. They didn't, I mean, didn't have their, their face pieces on or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. That, and, and the old reports don't really say whether their face pieces were found on them or not. Uh, I, I can assume I know for us, I mean, you'd probably walk in, you'd probably, you know, lay the hose line on the floor somewhere and you'd be trying to find your way around because you're trying to drag it around the cars mm -hmm. and all the tire machines and all the other stuff. And then that garage door opening, of course, was an uncontrolled event that uh, even the inch and three quarter line off of a two and a uh, two and a half liter line, you know, that's probably not enough for the amount of fire they would have had immediately yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, there's right. potential for big fire, so they should have probably had big water. Potentially, and we know that now, based on all yeah. uh, education we've had and experiences. Uh, department should ensure that firefighters do not enter structures. This is a recommendation number three. During ventilation, where there is a potential for built-up explosive gases to ignite and cause a backdraft or flashover, as evidenced by smoke-stained windows, so that was a key indicator at the rear of the building, and puffing smoke at the roof fence and the rear windows. So they definitely had a working fire. They had people inside and they ventilated. It talks here about uh, discussion. Firefighters are conducting interior attack. There's a hazard potential for backdraft or flashover, which flashover, especially nowadays, uh, so quick with all the uh, solidified gasoline that we live in. Uh, in the other recording we did a week ago, same thing. 
you know, they were in a public library and the software was so fast, uh, rapid ignition, ignition of fire and gases occurring in the burning or smoldering confined area. It probably didn't have enough oxygen. There was probably too much fire in there. And uh, that's probably why it was just waiting for more O2, decreasing the necessary oxygen for combustion. The trigger for the backdraft explosion, sudden increase in the percent of oxygen by volume, the introduction of fre fresh air, which enters the structure during the initial search and entry operations. There was no such thing back then as door control. The doors were probably wide open. And uh, as soon as the vents got opened, then oxygen's coming in, right? As demonstrated by this incident, hazardous conditions of backdraft can be present without any typical signs, such as the heavy yellow-gray smoke pushing out the, the puffing that we're all taught to look for out of building joints, roof, roof vents, and skylights. They didn't see any of that. You know, well, they went, it was late at night. It was probably dark. It's hard to judge color of smoke when it's dark, right? Right, actually. They didn't have light towers in 1998, not very many. They had the old stem light on top, that big round thing. And it used to telescope up and it had some floodlights on it. Uh, Chicago, uh, or I think uh, they used to use, a lot of the partners had the old night fighter, the three-light night fighter. That was uh, uh, high-tech in those days. Yeah. Um, it seems like nothing now. But right. It probably seemed like a lot of light back then. It, it did. Uh, absolutely. I was a big fan of night fighters. I tried to sell them on every truck uh, that I sold. I sold fire trucks for 25 years. So um, definitely that was uh, lighting was a deal. And you just got used to working in the dark, I guess. Should ensure that firefighters conducting ventilation on the roof are in communication with command. So there's issues that maybe command where he wasn't in, uh, in, in charge of the ventilation. Uh, they say firefighters conducting roof ventilation can see important size up situations not visible to the commander on the street. Roof conditions should be communicated to the command officer relaying about the presence of the, what roof construction it is, the fire conditions before and after ventilation and any other unusual conditions. This assists command officer in developing a plan of attack. Uh, I always used to teach people to do what they, I think it was called the curve cut. It was just a little triangle just to kind of get a hole to see what you got, but it's mm -hmm. not big enough to really contribute to, uh, to significant air movement. Nowadays, a lot of departments wouldn't even get on that roof. But Another um, big thing it mentions is... Uh, Doing a 360 is nice for command, but some some cities, I mean, doing a 360 means running around the whole block. So it's right. important for that, that roof man, get up on the roof and go check the backside and tell the chief or tell whoever's in command what you're seeing because you're helping them build their 360 picture, even though they're not seeing it themselves. Exactly, exactly. And, and I mean, they were just, you know, on their roof ladders. You don't even need to get on the roof. Just give me a visual, you know, or put the, put the tower up and, and let's have a look. Uh, I was talking with our other co-host, Dirk, the other day. Is like, I'm waiting for the command van with the uh, tethered drone. You just press the switch and the drone launches up, and then I've got it in my command van on video. I can see, uh, get an overhead view of the building without having to do any set up the ladder or anything. Uh, they're selling those now. I know that there's two two manufacturers that make tethered drones. I think that'd be, be a cool command tool for that uh, on-scene commander. Uh, recommendation number five, departments should encourage municipalities to review and amend building codes as applicable regarding exposed polystyrene insulation. So they, in this, uh, in this fire, the unprotected polystyrene glued to the underside of the truss roof in a service area could constitute a building code violation. 
This also provided a condition which provided abundant fuel to the fire, which was probably a long smoldering origin at or near an improperly operating exhaust fan reported by the fire investigations, which was located on the roof directly above the parts room area. There was just a bulletin uh, in one of the feed, one of my feeds about exhaust fans and how do we, how do we get like, uh, this is like apartment exhaust fans. How do we get people to be aware of the hazard of older exhaust fans or that are plugged up or worn out or overheating or bad wiring? I've personally attended a couple of fires where the investigation attributed to the fire to the bathroom exhaust fan. Uh, overheating and catching fire and, and uh, yeah, I've been to a few of those too where yeah. thankfully we got there early and, and kept it to that yeah but, we, we burned the roof off the of one house yeah. um, there's lots of in, I mean especially here I don't know the rest of North America but in where we live there's lots of insulation in the attic right and those fans overheat that insulation can spread real quick and all of a sudden you got a whole attic on fire yeah and yep. you might not know that the attic's on fire there's no detection there so the whole thing's on fire and you're inside you know, I smell smoke. What's going on? By the time the fire department gets there, who knows how long it's been burning for and all that stuff. Yeah. So there was just a thing that came across my feed is how do we, what can we do as fire departments to educate uh, building owners to either upgrade or be cautious? Um, you know, timer switches is a good way where it isn't on in case you leave it on. Cause I've done it, you know, you leave the fan on in the bathroom after you had a shower or whatever and uh you know come back three hours later and it's still going because you forgot to go turn mm -hmm. it off so timer switches is is a good idea as well so and then of course this polystyrene glued to the underside of the truss i did a, a building fire one time the foundation was one of those uh polystyrene foundations and all that was left was the cement that was poured inside of it the polystyrene was completely gone we came to the fire like two days later and there was nothing left except the cement. I was wondering how they made this weird shaped cement foundation. And it was, there was actually, and if you dug down below the dirt, you could see where the polystyrene had extinguished or had, it was there still. That's, uh, that's it for this investigation. Uh, you know, as I said, they were kind of simple back then, but uh, you know, what kind of building was it? How big is the building? size up communication, coordinated ventilation. Today we know from the FSRI studies and everything about, you know, controlling, identifying the flow path and controlling it, locate the seat of the fire, all those kind of things that might've helped with this, this uh, event. Any more to add, Doug? No, I think, I mean, it's just, it, I think the one thing we're good at in the fire service is when stuff like this happens, we, learn from it and make adjustments to not let it happen again. So hopefully this department, other departments that have looked at this change some of their practices so that it prevents it from happening again. And that's why we're here. So that when our brothers and sisters are out working out, uh, they can listen to this podcast and maybe learn some lessons from way back in 1998. No one wants to read these reports, but if we can pull them up and talk about them briefly, then it's another lesson. Uh, to learn. Uh, I, in doing these podcasts, I'm researching them. Uh, I sure appreciate the NIOSH reports. Uh, and in Canada, we don't have anything like that. So a lot of the reports are confidential and they go through the Occupational Health and Safety or Workman's Compensation Boards and it's hard to get information. So it's really cool that they have this uh, as a department of the uh, Centers for Disease Control in the States. So. All right, we'll leave it there. Sounds good. Until Talk next time.